0: We're going to pray this morning, uh, first of all, for our president-elect. I think um, it's fitting. Uh, pray for our country. 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and godly and dignified in every way. That's a fitting thing to pray for the future of our country, for our uh, Christian experience here in in, uh, the United States, that we can continue to enjoy a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this prayer for those who who are in authority, according to the next verse, says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It's a great way to start our morning, especially uh, the Sunday after the election. Um, Let's pray. We're also going to pray for another church in town. God, first of all, we want to pray for our country. We want to uh, recognize that um, we are thankful that we are part of a kingdom that cannot and will not ever be shaken. Uh, That ultimately our citizenship is um, different no matter where we live. uh, It is uh, squarely uh, planted in part of your kingdom as citizens of your kingdom as sons and daughters of your household, Lord. I pray that that will be the kind of thing that that calms everyone. If someone here this morning is excited about the outcome or someone here this morning is discouraged about the outcome, and for everyone in between, that all of us can exhale and know that our Lord reigns and the kingdom that we're part of will never end. God, I'm thankful that we have the reminder as empires rise and fall the eternal nature of your kingdom and your reign. Lord, also this morning, I want to uh, pray for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I want to pray for Matt Beasley and uh, his family. I want to pray first of all for Matt, for his worship, that he is being fueled by worship, first of all, that that is what is fueling his ministry, first of all, to his family, uh, his wife specifically, especially first, and then his children. And then uh, behind that and after that, his uh, uh, church family. Lord, I pray that he is uh, enjoying you, that he's surprised by your grace, that he's seeing beautiful and rich truths from your word week after week, and uh, that he is... Um, pray that you would guard him from the, um, the potential of seeing his, his call as a pastor as a job. And... Um, Pray that you'd give him an amnesia about some of the hard parts of it, and uh, give him a joy and uh, excitement and thankfulness for the good parts. And I pray that as he's going about the work of shepherding your people there, along with the other elders of Ridgecrest, that they are uh, that their eyes are fixed on Christ and that they are enjoying Him. Thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning, we pray for the church, Lord, for Ridgecrest. We pray for health and growth and uh, we pray for um, uh, just uh, good problems like parking issues and seating capacity and kids space and nursery space, and just pray that you would grow your kingdom through the ministry of Ridgecrest. Lord, I want to offer up this time um, for this church, Lord. I pray first of all for um, for me as a messenger, as a mouthpiece this morning. I pray that uh, the stuff that I carry into the pulpit each week, the very human element of preaching, of wanting to be thought well of of wanting to do a good job of wanting to be affirmed Um, Lord I pray that all that stuff would just sort of be moved out of the way this morning that we can that by dragging that in the light that I can just um, see that for what it is and just put that stuff out of the way and just be a faithful messenger today Lord I pray for your people this morning for our hearing Lord, I pray that we will engage in a way that's that's, um, in keeping with the weight of the passage. Uh, Lord, I I pray that there are no passengers this morning, but that there are a room full of worshiping participants. Lord, we give you this time as an offering. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. I'll give you a pep talk as you're turning there. You may not need the pep talk, but I might. There are times where I need to remind myself of what we're doing in a hard passage, hard book like Isaiah. And uh, I want to encourage you this morning that lazy people, with the the realization that lazy people don't mess with Isaiah. They just don't. (laughs) Lazy people don't want to hear it, likely, because it involves some work and hearing. Lazy preachers, I can tell you right now, don't want to touch it because it's about three to four times the amount of clawing and clamoring as it every other passage I've ever ever preached from. So um, it, is, it is probably the most difficult study and sermon prep that I've ever experienced, and likely it's going to be some of the most challenging listening that you've ever experienced. So this is a pep talk for all of us, okay, an encouragement for all of us. And just to I want to go ahead and ask the the elephant, shoot the elephant in the room, and ask the question: Why are we messing with it then? (laughs) Why are we doing this to ourselves? Uh, Here's why: It's one of the most quoted Old Testament books in our Bibles, in our New Testaments. That, along with the Book of Psalms, it is quoted over and over and over and over again, and apparently, is a large part of the context for what's being said and what's being communicated in the New Testament. So in some ways, what we're doing is we're adding context to where we spend most of our time. We, being a Christian church, enjoying Christ's work and what it means to be a Christian this side, or a Christian period, and to be a believer this side of Christ, we should spend a lot of time in the New Testament. But going back and doing really hard work in a book like Isaiah, I think pays off for us. And I think this morning, I hope and pray that this morning will be an example of that, will be a fulfillment of that reality, that something that we may have heard and read our whole lives will have a bigger and richer meaning after we've done the work in Isaiah. So we're going to do the work because it matters. Um, I prayed a moment ago for a room full of participants vice passengers. I gave an encouragement to our youth the other night. Uh, to on wednesday nights to not be passengers and we could do the same thing on sunday mornings i'm going to ask you implore you actually to not be a passenger this morning just on the bus with me driving but for all of us to be participants in this thing so it's going to mean you're going to need your bible this morning you always need your bible but you're especially going to need your bible this morning i really want to hear like pages and like leather calf skin if it made a noise that it would make a noise like a good soft calfskin kind of noise but some kind of noise as Bibles are being handled uh, if you don't have a Bible you're okay because there's one likely in the seat back in front of you there should be and that can be yours like you can totally have that you can write in it you can underline stuff in it and make it your own Isaiah chapter 7 we spent last week in the first part of chapter 7 Um, And we're going to spend this Sunday in the second part of chapter 7. Let me give you a bird's eye view of the the chapter. The chapter is an appeal. It's actually two appeals to the king of Judah, a man named Ahaz. Okay, I spent a little bit of time last week with some slides to help you get acquainted with the context. So let's get that first slide. This is the only slide we've got today. um, And it just at least gives you some... Glimpse. Uh, If you weren't here last week, you may be a little bit lost in this. If you were here last week, you will probably recollect uh, some of these slides. But this is the only one we're going to look at today. This little timeline that's coming off the left there is the story of Israel. It's got a little jagged line there. What's left of that that you can't see are the kings that you might remember, like King David, uh, like Solomon. Uh, Shortly after Solomon, in fact, Solomon's son was when the kingdom split, right there where Something goes north up to Israel and something goes south down to Judah. That's cardinal direction for actually what happened. The northern kingdom split off and was called Israel from that point on and was comprised of ten tribes. The southern tribe of Judah was comprised of Judah and Benjamin. And they were hence being the southern tribe in the south. Okay, and that's why I have them like that on the slide there. So after a period of time and a certain number of kings, if you've read the books of first kings and second kings and first second chronicles, you know the story somewhat of these kings. Well they go back and forth talking about the northern, northern and southern kings and kind of giving you their report. They love the Lord, they didn't love the Lord. They love the Lord, they didn't love the Lord. You know you've read it. You've likely read it. If you hadn't, then that's why it goes back and forth. They're talking to the, Israel, the Israelite kings and the Judah kings. And now, where we are in the story here is we're talking about King Ahaz. This is the guy that we're meeting here in Isaiah. He is the king of the southern tribe of Judah. Okay, Jerusalem is in Judah. Judah has some aliases. The house of David is, is an alias. Okay, it'll sometimes be referred to as Judah, or excuse me, as Jerusalem for shorthand for all of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom also has some aliases. Um, Israel, uh, Ephraim is an alias for, for Israel. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as Samaria. Uh, if, if Samaria is destroyed, then that means that Israel has been defeated. Okay, So those aliases might help you a little bit. There's some other aliases too, but that'll at least help you enough for this morning. Now the king in Israel is a guy named Pekah. And the king in Syria is a king named Rezin. And you remember the story from last week, King Pekah and King Rezin want to come up against Ahaz. In fact, they made an attempt to do so, but it failed. But they're conspiring to come back for a second shot at it. They want to lay siege to Jerusalem and defeat King Ahaz and replace him with a Syrian guy. Okay, This This is a grave threat for Ahaz and for Judah down there in the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay? Terrible time that Ahaz is facing here, and he's got to make a decision. And you can go and take that down, okay? And you can go ahead and put Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, up there. Um, Let me just give you a brief overview of the first appeal, okay? Because they kind of fit together, but I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to re preach the whole sermon from last week. This is just a brief. Refresher on the first appeal that went through the verse, first nine verses. Uh, Ahaz was encouraged, in fact, charged to trust God for protection based on the promise that God made to King David years earlier, 300 years earlier or something like that, hundreds of years earlier, okay? And many kings earlier. He made a promise to David that I will not leave Judah, I will not leave Jerusalem unprotected, Okay. He also encouraged through verses 1 through 9 to trust God, Ahaz. You need to trust God rather than scheming and entering into an alliance with the king of Assyria. A totally different king that was on the screen up there earlier. The king of Assyria, his name was Tiglath-Pileser. If you've read that passage and the guy has a funny name, that's who that is. The king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. And then also last week in that first appeal, those first nine verses, we met the first child of this story that we're covering this fall, uh, a, a kid named Sheer Jashub, uh, Isaiah's son named Sheer Jashub. The name actually means a remnant shall remain or a remnant shall return. And in some ways, Isaiah introducing Sheer Jashub to Ahaz was like saying, Ahaz, if you continue to move faithlessly and godlessly only a wee remnant will remain. Okay? This visual aid, this little boy named Sheer Jashim, remember with the little cubs ball cap on, you know, Isaiah brings him up there to King Ahaz. King Ahaz, this is my son, only only a remnant shall remain. That's the point. If you continue to move the way you're moving, Ahaz, only a wee remnant shall remain of all of Judah. It's a charge, it's a challenge, and it's a test. Now, Sometime later, we pick up in verse 10, or no time later. We don't know which. It says um, uh, in verse 10 where we're, where we're picking up again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. We don't know if Isaiah just continued talking. Maybe he saw Ahaz's body language as, uh, whatever, Isaiah, I'm not listening to you. Or if some time passed and God gave Isaiah another message for Ahaz. We don't know the time passed. But we, we do know that this is another separate appeal, okay? And this appeal begins in verse 10 and 11. Let's look at it here, these first couple of verses. What I plan to do, let me give you a map for the morning too. I told you we're going to do some work this morning. We're going to sort of unpack this passage that goes all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm going to familiarize you with what's going on here, sort of unpack the luggage a little bit, but we're going to spend most of the morning trying to crack the code on something. Okay, we're going to be like code breakers. And then if we can crack that code together then we're going to leave with something that I think is going to make for a very different understanding of something you've likely heard your entire life. And I don't mean a different understanding, a bigger understanding of something you've heard your whole life. Okay. So we're going to move through this chapter or the rest of this chapter, not slowly, but um, at, at a pace that gives us some familiarity. I want you to see the furniture because if you don't see the furniture, it's going to be hard to appreciate what we're considering. Okay, Let's begin in verses 10 and 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Remember, he's the king of the southern tribe of Judah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. He's asking, he's he's encouraging Ahaz, Isaiah is here, God through Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is the messenger, ask a sign, anything you want to test me. God is encouraging and inviting Ahaz, test me, Ahaz. In some ways what God is doing is testing Ahaz, but he's inviting uh, Ahaz to test him with any kind of sign that he can think of, test me to see if I'm true. And Ahaz, by the way, no sign is off limits. It can go as low as Sheol, which would be the depths of the earth, or it could actually be considered the place where dead people are buried or dead people live to as high as the heavens. There's nothing off limits from the grave to the sky. It could be an earthquake. It could be uh, the day turned to night. It could be the night turned to day. It could be um, hail. It could be rain. It could be drought. It could be heart-shaped clouds in the sky. It could be whatever you want, Ahaz. You can ask whatever you want. Okay? You could ask for somebody to even be raised from the dead, given the fact that he said from Sheol all the way up to the heavens, the gamut. Ask whatever you want. Before we even consider his response, just consider what a merciful God that we have that he's going to give boneheaded Ahaz, faithless, knuckleheaded Ahaz, another shot. And he doesn't even give him a lame shot. He gives him a great shot. Ask anything of me, Ahaz, whatever you want, from the grave to the sky or anywhere in between. Test me to see if I'm true. What a graceful and merciful God that we have. I've read and talked with Greg before, and I've read in different places where people, uh, um, your view of God is shaped by the kind of father that you had. If you have a father that's always barking orders at you and a strict disciplinarian and never really enjoys who you are, then that's probably going to be how you view God, if you don't let the Scripture shape it. You're going to view God as this cosmic killjoy that's just barking orders at you all the time. It's constantly disappointed in you. Or if you have a father that's never there and doesn't care about who you are as a person or didn't care about who you are as a person, then you're likely going to view God that way man let's just stop down and enjoy glimpses that we have of the character of our father our heavenly father so whatever kind of father that we had great one or sorry one we can know that in our god we have a great heavenly father that is merciful and is patient and is long suffering with the likes of boneheaded people anybody enjoy that before we continue anybody needed to hear that this morning Man, we know from chapter 6 that he's a holy God. But let's enjoy from chapter 7 too that he's merciful and graceful in giving Ahaz another shot. Now let's look at verse 12. Let's see how Ahaz responds. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. I I put in my notes, I wanted to read this as sort of a snot-nosed, nasal, punky guy that Ahaz is proving to be. I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Man, what a punk this guy is turning out to be. Wow, God has given him the, the, the gamut of opportunities from the, the grave to the sky and anywhere in between. Ask anything of me, any test of me to, to see and prove that I am true. And a response is an appeal to a passage in Deuteronomy 6. Oh, I shall not put the Lord God to the test. All right, you are a big punk. God offered this to him. Okay, make no mistake. God, the same God of Deuteronomy 6 offered this to Ahaz, giving us a sign of how important this situation was and how important it was for Ahaz to trust God. And Ahaz, some sort of fake piety, false piety, says, I will not put the Lord God to the test. You know, the reality is likely is a sign, if a sign had actually been exposed, if a sign had actually happened as he requested, it would likely would have exposed him for his faithlessness. So of course he doesn't want to sign. It looks as if Ahaz has already made up his mind and he's convinced in his rebellion. Hey, I've got a little deal working with Tiglath-Pileser, so no sign, no thank you. And by the way, would you leave me alone? Because I trust this thing's going to work out well with Tiglath-Pileser. You can almost hear that behind the text. Now, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 together. And let me tell you, though, before we move to verses 13 and 14, there is a big shift in this chapter. A huge shift takes place between verses 12 and 13, and it's an ominous turn. I'm going to point it out to you later, but just start to try and pay attention to the shift in tone to the rest of the chapter at this point. Look at verses 13 and 14 and he said, this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, so at this point, the whole chapter takes a significant turn. God is showing up as graceful and merciful and patient, but as of now, He is a God that doesn't grow tired is weary of Ahaz. (laughs) He's like, all right, that does it. They're pulling out the old Deuteronomy 6 reference and speaking to me like a little punk now. That does it. I am patient. I'm long-suffering. I'm merciful and graceful. But I'm not a chump. You can almost hear God saying that. So God presents his own sign. Okay, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I gave you any and every opportunity. If you're not going to ask for a sign, then I'm going to give you a sign. And here's your sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she'll name him Emmanuel. This is going to be the focus of the morning. We're going to try and crack the code of who this is. Okay, You might be sitting there thinking, I already know who this is. I, you may be surprised. You may be surprised. So we're going to come back to that. Later on, once we move through the rest of the chapter. Now, in verse 15, let's see if we can get some details on this boy, Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, he'll eat curds and honey when he's like twenty to, 12 to 20 years old. Okay, What's described there is, when, is uh, he'll, he'll eat curds and honey uh, when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. That is speaking of an age of discernment in the Hebrew context. And that was considered to be between the ages of 12 and 20. So he's given them some specific time frame there. This guy is going to be eating curds and honey by the time he's 12 to 20 years old. This boy that's born, this boy named Emmanuel. And let me just point this out to you. Curds and honey are not to be confused with curds and whey that little Miss Muffet ate. (laughs) Okay, that was cute. And that was a cute little meal. This is not a cute little meal. And this oftentimes, I think, is confused with something that sounds kind of cute. It's not cute. Curds, first of all, I did a little study on curds. I didn't know a whole lot about curds. I got to admit, it's kind of like asking, what is a grit? What's a curd? I wanted to know what a curd is. And curd, it turns out, is when you add vinegar or lemon juice or some other substrate or substance to milk. It forms these little chunks in milk, which doesn't sound very delicious. It's actually in cottage cheese, though, for some of you that really like cottage cheese. And even if you really like cottage cheese, just take a special note that you're likely not going to see anything with curds in it at Saltgrass or Ben 303... Are three forks because it's the meal of poverty it's the meal of destruction it's the meal of devastation Kurds in way is not quaint at all this prophecy that that Isaiah is giving Ahaz is that this boy that's gonna be born of this virgin is going to be eating a meal of poverty by the time he's 12 to 20 years old Ahaz you should, should you press on faithlessly, the virgin son will be eating poor people food. That's the message there. Now let's look at the next verse, verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, so before he's 12 to 20 years old, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now the two kings that, that we've pointed out before, Rezin and Pekah, the ones that are threatening Ahaz, that's the two kings he's speaking of. And he says, before this boy reaches the age of of discernment, those lands will be deserted and those kings will be defeated. And sure enough, three years later, Damascus is destroyed and Syria is defeated. And 14 years later, Samaria is destroyed and Ephraim or Israel are taken into exile. So sure enough, those details are coming true. Those prophecies are coming true. And they're pretty specific to the time. Okay. anybody still want to want to come up with an answer for who this um, Emmanuel is and the Virgin yet? Okay, we're going to get there. Verse seventeen: The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, that would be Israel, departed from Judah, the king of Israel, and I should say, at the hand of the king. I just said king of Israel, at the hand of the king of Assyria. Let me read that again. I was a little bit confusing the way I read that. I told you we are going to work today. Okay. The Lord will bring upon you, and I, you could include in there, Ahaz. If you continue on faithlessly, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, or Israel, departed from Judah, and you could plug in there, at the hand of Assyria. Okay, let me help explain this a little bit. If you press on faithlessly, Ahaz, Judah will experience the amount of suffering and turmoil that they haven't experienced for 300 years. And that suffering and turmoil will come at the hands of the guy that you're making a deal with right now, Tiglath-Pileser, or maybe his replacement, Sennacherib, or somebody after him. It's going to come at the hands of Assyria At the hands of the buddy that you're striking a deal with right now. Man, some terrible stuff is unfolding here. So let's see what happens in verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read those all together and then we're going to sort of unpack them just briefly. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt. And for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks. And on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, and with the king of Assyria, or with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. Actually, I'm going to stop right there. If you press on faithlessly, Ahaz, you're going to see the sovereignty and power of God against you instead of for you. If you press on faithlessly, not believing the promise that was made to David not believing the promises that are being made through Isaiah, then you're going to have a front row seat to the sovereignty and power of God. In these couple of verses, first of all, verses 18 through 20, the foreign armies are going to be the instrument that God uses to bring against them. Egypt and Assyria in this case. But here's the beauty of the sovereignty of God. Egypt, the armies of Egypt... And the armies of Assyria are but wee flies in God's eyes. Man, to to the person that's living then, can you imagine how ominous those armies would be? But to God, they're but wee flies. And by the way, they're also flies that come to a whistle when it's God's whistle. Man, who can, first of all, even control a fly? But God can control these flies of Egypt and Assyria And God is who you should be fearing right now, Ahaz. Not Syria and not Israel. Look at verses 21 and 22. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. There it is again. For everyone who's left in the land will eat curds and honey. God is ordaining, hear this, ordaining suffering and destruction. Because God is not a chump. Y'all need to hear that this morning. God is not a chump. And he has ordained that foreign armies will make it so difficult in the land of Judah that what's going to be on the menu? Curds and honey. Not curds and whey. Curds and honey. And then lastly, verses 23 through 25. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines... Worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Summary of those few passages there is what was valuable will no longer be valuable. Have you ever seen some of these movies, these apocalyptic-type movies where some sort of event happens, this cataclysmic event of like a bomb or a tidal wave or you know, something like that, a tsunami? You, know, and you see this destruction that takes place in the aftermath. You see this beautiful Mercedes sitting there, but nobody cares, and nobody's even involved, and nobody's even wanting to mess with it. You might see it sitting in front of a mansion that's empty. Because things that were once viable are no longer valuable in light of judgment. That's what's going to happen here is judgment's going to be so profound that it will upend the value system. So, a summary of the second appeal. Okay? We've done what I think is really probably the hardest work so far this morning. And you guys, I think, have stuck with me. Okay? Here's a summary of the second appeal. All right? Ahaz, should you press on faithlessly, only a few will survive. And your schemes will fail. And your alliances, in fact, will turn on you and devour you. It's a promise. And it's a sign. So you're going to see it happen. Okay? Now... Now, we're going to put on our little uh, Sherlock Holmes hat that has the bills pointing both directions. I never, never knew why I'd do that. It's kind of a weird hat. Got a bill on the front, bill on the back. Keeps the sun off the back of your neck, I guess. Well, we're going to put on that funny hat and we're going to try and make sense of and crack the code on who the virgin is and who the sun is. Okay? Let me encourage you right now don't make a beeline to Bethlehem. For those of you that are thinking, man, I already got this. I didn't even really need to come today. This is kind of dumb. Don't make a beeline to Bethlehem. Okay, you may think you know who we're talking about here, but you may be surprised. Let me point out too before we take a closer look at this is an observable sign. Then God would not give Ahaz a sign that He would not be able to observe. Okay, the birth of Christ was about seven hundred years later. That'd be kind of hard for Ahaz to observe. He's giving him an observable sign that was relevant then. Okay? Now, first of all, the virgin. The virgin there, that word there in Hebrew for virgin actually means maiden. Okay, There is another Hebrew word for virgin, and that word is not used. And some people consider that this must just mean a maiden and not a virgin. But a maiden, it's an implied virginity with a maiden. It's an unmarried woman here. And that's why our ESVs and a lot of your other translations treat this as a virgin. Contextually, that's a fitting word here, the virgin. I also want to point out, too, that the definite article is in front of it. Not a virgin will give birth to a son, but the virgin. It's apparently a woman, and I'm going to use air quotes around that because you're going to see where we're going. It's a woman that is known, would have been known by Ahaz, would have been considered up to this point in the prophetic account of Isaiah. It's a known woman we're speaking of. We're not just speaking of any old woman, we're speaking about the virgin, the maiden. And this virgin, this maiden, will conceive and will have a son. And his name will be, will be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel meant then what it means now, what it meant 2,000 years ago. Let me, let me explain this. When Jesus was born, God with us. It didn't mean anything different then. That's exactly and precisely what it meant. Okay, so the virgin... We'll conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. If you're like me, you got to be wondering, who in the world is this boy then? If we're not talking about Mary and Jesus, who in the world are we talking about? Now, here's what's kind of funny. Preaching through Isaiah, I, I use probably six or seven different commentaries, Okay. It was Robert Bledsoe who stepped in my office the other day. He said, man, this is intimidating, these books on the wall, because most of them are commentaries. He's thinking like I read from cover to cover. You don't read from cover to cover in a commentary, it, thankfully, because that would be in, in, intimidating. You take out sections, and you, you, can, you read a certain section, and I consult these commentaries before I preach. Okay? I do personal work in the Hebrew and in the text before I even go to a commentary. Bathe it in prayer because I don't want to stand on anybody's shoulders right off the bat. I want to figure out what God's message is for this church first. And then I go to the commentaries to test myself and to test where I've gone. Am I standing on some good shoulders here? Am I standing in a trustworthy uh, translation or a trustworthy treatment of a passage? Well, here's what's funny about Isaiah chapter 7 with my commentaries. I have like seven commentaries. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 7 in my seven commentaries, up to chapter 7, they're tracking you know, they're tracking. They're all seven. You go, yeah, man, he agrees with this man. Yeah, they're all there, and everybody's tracking. And then you get to, get to chapter seven, and they go, pfft. They go like seven different directions. But actually, here's what's kind of cool. They actually go only go six different directions. Two of my commentaries landed squarely where we're going this morning, and the others had some different views on who this boy might be, okay? The ones that had different views start with the boy, and that's why I think we're, where, where we go wrong is if you start with the boy and try and figure out the boy is, who the boy is, then you, you, can, you can get off track. One of my commentaries treated Meher Shalal Hashbaz as the prophesied boy. Okay? If you've read ahead in Isaiah, you read in chapter 8, you know that Isaiah has another son. His first son was named Shear Jashub. His second son is named Meher Shalal Hashbaz. We're going to meet him next week. Okay? You don't need to know what his name means, although it's very important. We're going to take a look at this little boy next week. But I think we're talking about a boy that's totally different because, and this is kind of an obvious thing, because Isaiah's wife is not a maiden. She's mom to, to shear Jashib. She's already had a child. She's certainly not a maiden. She's married to Isaiah. She's not a virgin. She couldn't even be described as a virgin at this point. So I think that excludes Meher Shalal Hasbaz. One, one commentary believed that what was being prophesied here was a later king of Judah named Hezekiah. Time-wise, that doesn't fit at all because he gives some very specific time frame that by the time this boy, whoever he is, reaches the age of discretion, there's some specific things that are going to happen. Syria is going to be defeated and Israel is going to be defeated and those lands will be deserted. He gave some specific time frame that don't work with Hezekiah and don't work with any of Ahaz's offspring. Some people believe that he's just given a figurative uh, virgin and, um, or metaphorical virgin and uh, son, really pointing toward the Christ that would only be fulfilled later in the person of Christ, in Mary and Jesus. Okay, but that really doesn't fit with an observable sign at all. Why would God give Ahaz a sign that could not be observed? This has got to be something and someone else. Now, follow with me. I think where we have to start is not with the son, we have to start with the virgin. We have to figure out who this maiden is, and I think this is a lob if you're really looking around in Isaiah, and you're looking around at what Isaiah has said, and I think that's going to lead us in the right direction for figuring out who the son is. So I just have two passages for you to look at briefly. Isaiah chapter 1 is the first one, and the second is Second Kings 19. We're going to figure out who this virgin is. We've got our Sherlock Holmes hats on, Uh, CSI. It's not a crime, but maybe we'll kind of act like CSI investigators. We're going to figure this thing out, right? Man, I like hearing those pages turn, (laughs) because it means we're doing some work. Did I say it? Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1 and 2 Kings 19. We've got to figure out who this virgin is. Okay, do the work with me. I promise you, it's going to pay off. Okay, okay. Isaiah chapter one, verse eight. Isaiah himself. You know, let me let me give you a little tip on Bible study. Whenever you're looking at a passage and you see a a phrase or a name or something that's used there or um, a word, and you're like, "Man, what does that word mean?" Um, There's nothing better to interpret scripture than scripture. Okay, know that. It's called the analogy of faith. There's a name for that. That's good interpretation to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Now, what's even better or what's the the purest form of analogy of faith is to go within book and within author, within speaker. So to make sense of who this virgin is, we shouldn't just go to any old page in the Bible and any old writer in the Bible. We need to look in Isaiah. How does Isaiah use that term? Okay, Look over here in chapter 1, verse 8. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. In that context, if you remember, now this was a year ago, so you likely don't remember, he's speaking of Judah right there. Isaiah calls Judah the daughter of Zion. Okay, That sounds a little bit maiden-like. Now, it's not enough to make a case on, but it sounds a little bit like he's at least referring to Judah as a woman and a daughter. Okay. Now here's the what's really going to cinch it in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 20 and 21. This is an account of where we'd be sort of fast forward in the story to where Isaiah is uh, a prophet during the time of Hezekiah. Okay, this would have been later on in Isaiah's ministry. And look at verse 21. It's less about the context and more about the language that he uses. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. Okay, he's speaking of Assyria. Here, Assyria is going to be punished. Okay, God uses them to bring judgment, but later on, he punishes Assyria. And he says, She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you the daughter of Jerusalem. Now here Isaiah is referring to Judah as the virgin daughter of Zion and as the daughter of Jerusalem. Those couple of passages give us a glimpse into the mind of Isaiah I think as we're looking at Isaiah chapter 7. And I believe when Isaiah is speaking of the virgin he is speaking, it seems to be clearly speaking, of Judah. The virgin is a specific woman, and it is in some ways a metaphorical woman, represent, representing the southern kingdom and people of Judah. Okay, If that's the virgin daughter that he's referring to, then we might be able to get somewhere in figuring out who this son is that will be named Emmanuel. Now, this is pretty cool. Okay, you got to hang in there with me. Before we get there, let me, let me sort of incorporate this into our appeal. Ahaz, here's your sign. I gave you the gamut of any kind of sign that you wanted, and you passed. You went, you acted like a punk, so I'm going to give you the sign. Here's your sign. Judah will conceive and give birth to a son. Okay, all we've done there is replaced Judah with the virgin daughter or the virgin woman, okay? Judah will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, follow me. We're going to figure out who the son is next. The context that's, that's developed there, uh, or this developed all around chapter 7 of Isaiah, if you've been paying attention these last few weeks, you know that there is a theme that has been developed ...in the book of Isaiah so far. And I brought it up from our very first sermon in Isaiah. And it's likely been a word that's come up every single week. And it's the word remnant. If you've heard that word, that is a key word... ...and a key teaching in the book of Isaiah. It is a theme developed of a seed and a future... ...that comes from unlikely places. A seed and a future that comes from unlikely places... If you were here a couple Sundays ago, you know that we preached from Isaiah chapter 6, the call of Isaiah. And you remember how that chapter ended and that call ended. If you don't remember, here's a little excerpt from it. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole call because it's just so, No, I'm not. I'm going to read the last verse of the call. Okay? If you want to read the whole call, do it. But just... I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to spend too much currency. Let's go right to verse 13. And though a tenth... Okay, let me just give you some background. <sighs> If I'm not sweating, I'm about to start. You might be sweating this morning. That's all right. That's all right. Okay, the call of Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah, or God says to Isaiah, who am I going to send? Isaiah says, send me. I'll go. I'll go do whatever you want. He says, okay, as you go, as you teach and as you preach, their hearts will go deafer. Their hearts will go harder. Their, or their, their ears will grow deafer. Their eyes will grow blinder. And their hearts will grow harder. And then Isaiah's like, well, how long I got to do that? That sounds like a really terrible... Call. Okay? You remember that whole story from a few weeks ago. Well, he, he gives a very detailed call here to Isaiah. This is what your ministry is going to be like. And the last verse, listen to it, of chapter 6. And though a tenth remain in it, he's speaking of Judah, that's going to go through some terrible persecution and terrible trial through the Assyrians and then eventually through the exiles. And though a tenth remain in Judah, it will be burned again like a terebinth or oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about this, this thing that God does where he does good things with unlikely things. Like he takes the foolish things that confound the wise. Okay? Like he takes an Abram and a Sarai and he creates a whole new people from them with Abram or Abraham and Sarah and then a people are born through their offspring. That's the way God moves. And he takes a stump. Remember the picture of the field or field full of stumps? He takes a stump and from a field full of stumps, it wasn't a field, it's specifically a stump. He takes a seed and hope and a future is going to come from a stump. That's the context for this remnant shall remain. And it's unlikely, as unlikely as a seed coming from a stump. Anybody ever seen a seed come from a stump? Well, it can and it does when God's involved. Well, has anybody ever seen a boy born to a virgin? Well, it can and does when God's involved. It's an unlikely development there, but that's the way God likes to, u- likes to move, apparently, in unlikely situations. He takes the foolish things to confound the wise, like a seed coming from a stump, like a boy coming from a virgin. It just doesn't even make sense. It doesn't add up unless God's involved. And in this case, the whole context surrounding trying to make sense of who this Emmanuel is, is it appears to be a son is born from a virgin... And that that son would be, if it's born from Judah, contextually, it's going to be the surviving remnant. Remember the boy he just brought to, to Ahaz just in the verses before. Here's my son, Sheer Jashub, a remnant shall remain. A seed will come from a stump. A, a son will be born from a virgin. It fits. It fits and it's glorious and it's beautiful when you see it that way. The surviving remnant will be born from the virgin daughter of Zion and Judah. So let's incorporate those into our appeal to Ahaz. Ahaz, here's your sign. Since you wouldn't offer one back to me, I'll give you a sign. And here's your sign. Judah will conceive and give birth to a surviving faithful remnant. And it'll seem as unlikely as a seed coming from a stump or a boy coming from a virgin. And that'll change the way you've read this, the way you might read this chapter again. Verses 18 through 25, these phrases that are re- that are used over and over again in this section, verses 18 through 25, in that day the Lord will whistle, in that day the Lord will shave, in that day the Lord will keep alive, in that day in every place there used to be a thousand vines. Those are labor pains then for the birth of a remnant. When you read verses 18 through 21 together, you can hear the Pitocin Dripping. All right, you hear it dripping, and there ain't no epidurals either. This girl's in labor, boy. She's about to give birth to a remnant. Man, it's glorious when you see it. You go, yes. Emmanuel then, then, is the remnant that will survive the judgment that God is giving Judah. It's a remnant of Judah, not all of Judah. It's a group of people within Judah that will continue to believe God, that will hold on to God, that will trust God, even though Ahaz isn't. That surviving remnant will then later be the surviving remnant will later be the people that the Christ is born from. It's beautiful. If the remnant had not survived and Judah had been wiped away, it would be like the flood minus the little wee family on the ark. It would just be a tragic, tragedy, and there would be no us. But the beauty is, when you see this, is, oh, you've been talking about Judah being the virgin, and you've been talking about the remnant being the son, then that makes sense for him to be named Emmanuel. Let's talk about that for a minute. It makes total sense for him to be called Emmanuel. And it would have been such good news to that remnant. This message from Isaiah would have been such good news for that remnant. But first of all, the, there would have been the good news that God is with them. Okay, If this people were going to be called and named Emmanuel, then let's talk about them. We'll deal with us in a minute. But let's talk about them when they're facing Uh, The Assyrians, they're facing the Syrians, they're facing Israel, they're facing siege. They're facing all these difficult times that are in store that they know is coming because it's brewing and it's already happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. They're seeing these things unfold. To hear the good news that God is with them would have been awesome news. This God who's also far more powerful than the armies of Egypt and the armies of Assyria and in fact compared to them To compare it to God, they're but we flies. And they come at his call. And they leave when he tells them. Man, that would be a good thing to hear if you were living in Jerusalem at this this time and you were part of this faithful remnant. God is with you. Yes, that is good news. And oh, by the way, this God also shaves the face and the feet. I, I can't figure out the feet thing unless they're like those guys in Lord of the Rings. Hobbits, yeah, ancient Israelites may have been like hobbits, I don't know. He shaves the face, adds a whole new meaning to foot washings, does that it? He shaves the face and the feet of Judah with the razor of foreign armies, yet he is with the remnant in a special way. Man, the remnant, the faithful people that are trusting the Lord, even though Ahaz isn't, even though a lot of people in Judah won't, When they're sitting behind that wall in Jerusalem and they're hunkering down with their family and they're trusting and believing the Lord, they can know that this God whistled for those armies that surround Jerusalem like they're flies and bees compared to his sovereignty and power and strength. They can trust and know that God is not going to leave them alone. God is for them. He is with them in a special way. Whatever flies... Whatever bees, whatever razor Judah may face, Emmanuel's God is with them. The remnant shall remain because God is with them. Now, God is with them. That's good news too. The fact that God is with them is awesome. But God is with them is good news. Let me show you a little transition. I told you that this, this chapter took an ominous turn between verses 12 and 13. Let me, let me or between verses 10 and 11 and then verse 13. Let me just show you this ominous turn. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7, uh, Isaiah brings a message to Ahaz, a message that comes from the Lord. It says, Ask a sign of, look at the word here, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ahaz, I'm giving you another chance here, boy. Ask a sign of your God. Okay, I told you it took an ominous turn. Let's look at what it said in verse 13. After Ahaz does the whole punk thing, I will not put the Lord God to the test. Then in verse 13, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Man, it took a crazy turn at that point because he was your God for a moment there while there was still a possibility that you might believe and trust him. But guess what? He's not a chump. He's not going to be with you if you're not believing him and not trusting him because God's not a chump. God's going to be with those people who are believing him and trusting him. Isaiah said, he's my God, but apparently he's not yours. And guess what? He's not with you either. If you're not believing him and you're not trusting him, he's not with you like he's with Emmanuel. Like he's with the remnant. Man, he is with God's people. So they are appropriately named Emmanuel, God with us. As you see him walking around, you say, man, God is with them. God is with them. And God's with them. Man, what a beautiful development, too, to know that our God is not aloof and uncaring when it comes to his people. He's not disengaged. He never sleeps. And his presence with his remnant remains even and especially through tough times. And the same is true now as you face tough times. God is with them. Now let's deal with the them just briefly. Who is the us of Emmanuel? Well, it's the them in that case, 700 years before Jesus, is speaking of this remnant, is speaking of this this little group of people within Judah that would survive the trials and the exiles. But notice that it is a plural word. It would be the ones, plural, believing and trusting God. Safety and protection and hope was for the faithful remnant together. It was for the faithful remnant together. The us of God with us was a people within a people. A holy remnant trusting God together. Now, we've done the hard work now. Now we can go to Bethlehem. All right? Last place I want you to go this morning is Matthew chapter 1. Man, I hope, I just hope and pray this does for you what it's done for me this week. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read a little context there while you're turning. I like to hear the pages. Keep turning. I want you to see it. Beginning in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, a.k.a. a maiden, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, as surprising as a seed coming from a stump. As surprising as a people being born from a barren old couple. Man, the foolish things to confound the wise. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That would be the prophet Isaiah, 700 years earlier. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The ultimate fulfillment of what we've looked at this morning is without a doubt, ultimately fulfilled In the persons of this virgin, Mary, and her son, the God-son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Born from the remnant that survived the exiles and the difficulties that we've been talking about hundreds of years earlier. But here's the cool thing. Seeing who was called Isaiah then... And I mean then, as in then, then, way back then, in the time of Isaiah. Seeing who was called, excuse me, Emmanuel then. Did I say Isaiah? I hope I didn't. I got a lot of stuff going on in my head right now. If we survive this, if we get in and out nobody gets hurt, it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Seeing who was called Emmanuel then and understanding what it meant then adds a whole new robust meaning to what it means here and what it means now. Let me help you with it, briefly. In Christ, God is with us. God is with us. God the Son, not a representation, not a likeness, not a mere likeness, but God the Son was born in Bethlehem. As our Nicene fathers called him, he said, Very God of very God. God is with us. And we don't have to fear any earthly king. Our versions of Pekka, our Rezin, our Tiglath-Pileser, or anyone else. Because we have the high king of heaven with us. God is with us. Secondly... God is with us. God is literally with us in this human experience. See, this God joined us by becoming incarnate. He took on flesh and walked in our shoes. He joined our race. He is literally with us in this human experience. Man, our Chalcedonian fathers said of him that he is truly God and truly man. He wasn't somehow kind of man. He's fully God and fully man. And God is with us in this person of Christ. And lastly, God is with us. The modern rendering of faith these days is God is with me. Me and Jesus got this thing. God's with me. and God helps me when I have hard times. And Is there a personal element to faith? Absolutely. But man, that is the thin sliver of the context then and the context in our New Testament that God is with us. God is with his people. See, we are the fulfillment of that shadow that was the remnant. See, the remnant, that faithful remnant, they kept going. They kept marching on through the time between the Testaments, okay, through the Maccabean, Maccabean period. They keep marching on, and then the Christ is born from them, and they trust him and believe in him and keep marching on. And then a bunch of Gentiles join them, and they become the church. And that's us. God is with us. Is he with you in a personal sense? Man, you better believe he is. But is he with us? Yes! Yes! Man, we could be called Emmanuel. Think about that. As people see us gathering, they drive by cross-point Fellowship, and they say, man, God is with those people. You're right in the person of Jesus Christ. God is with us. Man, Christ died for the church, and in many ways we are a remnant being saved out of this world as this world is facing judgment. In some ways, we're a later version of what was going on then. I hope and pray with everything in me. This is what I've labored over all weekend. I eat a lot of stuff when I get, when I get nervous. I eat like a hog yesterday, like a hog. I was like a blimp. I went for a bike ride, and I couldn't even pedal. I was, ugh. I was so nervous. Ugh, people just going to think it's like a, like a seminary class and leave with nothing. My nerves yesterday, my burden today, the burden behind my nerves yesterday is that you would see and enjoy a fuller meaning of his name. Man, God is with us. That you would see it and enjoy it in a way that would change the way you would hear even the word Emmanuel. You wouldn't just see it and look over there at Jesus, but you would see it also as God is with his people. He always has been. God is truly with us. Let me pray. God, what good news. What great news. Just imagining what life must have been like in that time, 2,700 years ago, as they faced siege from Syria and Israel as their king was making a deal with the king of Assyria and trusting in all the wrong things and all the wrong people. God, it's awesome to imagine there was a remnant there, a little seed, a little people, a little son born during that period that would survive that season, that would trust you and believe you, even when their eyes told them everything else. God, I'm thankful for that beautiful picture then. And Lord, I pray that we will be that people now. Whatever our future, whatever unfolds for us, whatever threats we may face, that we can celebrate and enjoy that God is with us. God the Son is with us and he's with us. And he's with us us together. God, I pray this sermon will be identity shaping, identity developing. We'll see ourselves as the bride of Christ, the people that Christ died for, and that we together would trust you. God, we love you so much, and we are so thankful. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Every week, we take the supper. We've been doing this for some time now, for years now, in fact. And in many ways, what we're doing when we take the supper, we collectively, we're, do, we're participating in the us. There may be a rare occasion where someone takes the supper by, by themselves without us, like if they're in a nursing home or something like that, and we have folks that might go visit them or someone's home and can't make corporate worship gathering. It would be fitting for us to, to take them the supper. But ideally, this supper is taken together as an us where we together enjoy His our incarnation. We enjoy the with that he's with us, and we enjoy his godness each week. We remember that his broken body and his shed blood paid a price that only God could have paid. And we declare every single week when we take this supper that God is with us. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy him together.